and welcome to Birdcast, the podcast where we discuss the work of legendary screenwriter Nigel Neal in many different media. It's another Christmas episode this time where we talk with Robert Taylor, freelance writer and an author working on a book about the 1989 ITV production of Woman in Black, which was scripted by Neil and directed by Herbert Wise. In the course of this discussion, we talk about Robert's personal connection with the production. We talk about the unnerving performance of Pauline Moran, the wonderful atmosphere on the sets, the unusually small number of script drafts it took to get to production and many more things. This is Birdcast and we're talking about the woman in black. Well, Robert, welcome to welcome to Birdcast. Welcome. Hello, hi. Thanks for having me. It is, and um, we've been waiting to do this one a while, but it was uh, it was one I felt strongly we'd, we'd we'd like we'd like to do at Christmas. Sometimes called Nigel Neal's last great work. That might, I think, be a a bit harsh on Stanley and Stan Stanley and the women, but then or indeed the dumb sharp. Yeah, but it's I suppose Sharp is seen as, as seen as part of a part of a series, so it's it's. But anyway, that has you know, adaptation stories to tell from what we what we get from 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 Bernard But nevertheless, um, this is often known as 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 his last great work. And thanks to Networks Blu-ray coming out, what was it? August last year, I think. Yes. Delayed. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's, um, it's 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 had life. After a long, long period of period of dormancy, now I think we'll all discuss this as well. But I'll, I'll I'll start with as well. I saw this on broadcast on Christmas Eve, 19, 1989 on ITV. I was a bit too young. I was eleven. I was on my own because my parents uh, ran a pub and they were working downstairs at nine pm on, on Christmas Eve. The pub was the pub was very busy, and I watched the Woman in Black, and I. Sure as shit, wish I didn't afterwards, and it was unbelievably terrifying. Um, and it never left me, but I didn't tape it, and I never saw it again. I never got it was a Channel Four repeat, wasn't it? About nineteen ninety four, uh, but I never saw it again. And the next time, I think was yeah, twenty thirteen. BFI did Gothic season, and they showed. Um, Herbert Wise's Nigel Mills Woman in Black. And I went to see it because I was like, I have to see this because I remember this from, from, from 1989, but with an expectation that it might be a bit of its time. I've focused on the bits that scared me as a kid. It probably won't be quite, in, quite the same in the way that revisiting something that was always good at the time, be it, you know, Friends, when you're older, trying to recreate being something slightly slightly younger, or throwing the country off an economic precipice because you just wish you could still be racist. 
and that be socially acceptable. It's never as good to, to, to go back into the past. I was fully prepared that I think I wasn't quite as good. And I was. And you took back control. And I took back, I didn't though. I completely lost control for a second time and um, was uh, equally blown away as, as an adult for how well it stood up. Uh, and it was every bit as scary and every bit as, and every bit as well made and every bit as well performed. As, as, as I remember, and I was so delighted and still genuinely scared, not quite as much as scared as an 11 year old, but that's to do with <laughs> natural maturation, if anything else, um, but was so pleased. Uh, but then it was then the frustration of, I mean, you could get off air, off air copies, but yeah, they were still off air copies um, to finally have a, 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 a beautiful uh, rest restored version was a, was, 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 was a long time coming. And I think the mystique that it, that it built up was partly because it was you know, no bugger had ever seen it, but people were old enough to, to or young enough to remember it. Um, but it it lived it, it it lived up to the hype. Howard, what's your what's your initial memory of of this production? Well, I completely missed it as a kid. I was fourteen. I can pretty much guarantee. That my dad, although he loved a good ghost story, was probably watching Morecambe Wise or whatever it was on the other side. Um, more or less guaranteed that. I first saw it in 2016. And I was um, at the time working in a home for young people who just come out of care. Um, an old copy that was ripped from a DVD R. And um, I was on a lonely night shift. Everybody else was asleep, but I watched it entirely on my own in November, possibly early December 2016. And holy shit. It gave me the willies. It was, I remember, you know, and obviously, you know, not being a kid, not having caught it at that formative moment, but even seeing this old piece of TV, which in a lot of ways was one of the things that I like to call at the time a ghost of television, in that it was a sort of degraded secondhand version, a copy of a copy, because that was all you could have then. And that degraded nature of it made it even more frightening um and um particularly the scene the scene which particularly terrifies terrifies and and, and things which is also also frightening in its persistence frightening that it just goes on and on and on watching i watched it again this morning you're um, referring to the scene where uh the woman in invades invades um kipps's uh bedroom yeah yeah, and he finds the toy soldier under his pillow. Yeah. And he turns around and he's he, he's haunted briefly by the ghost of young Nathaniel. And then there she is in his face. And that goes, I was surprised to find actually that that scene's probably not half as long as I remember it being first time around. But it doesn't cut as quickly as you think it's going to. So No, no. But... Oh, and um, just, to, just to check, on BBC One, uh, on Christmas Eve at this time. We had the end of ever-decreasing circles, we had the news and the start of legal eagles. So it wasn't an obvious Christmassy thing that would, would have turned you over. It mm. wasn't particularly seasonal fare 
I wonder what it was that my dad was watching instead. Um, that's that's interesting because I, I was I was old enough to stay up at this point. I was about um, I I, I nineteen eighty nine. I'd been were you sure? But were you aware of this production before you before you saw it? No, I don't think I'd, I. Weirdly, I don't think mm. I'd ever heard of it. It was a big gap in my knowledge, which is kind of odd because um, having been pretty much brought up by the TV, I actually had a fairly encyclopedic knowledge of what was on at any given point. So, having missed it um, first time round, I did legitimately miss it. I, I, it, I, I, I learned about it because you told me about it. Right. Okay. It seems to be th- some people do seem to affect surprise when they learn it's Nigel Neal. I think that's less now. Now it's now it's now it's now it's had now it's had that release. But this is something I think we'll I think we'll come on to. Robert, what was your first experience of, of Woman in Black? Yes, my first experience was Christmas Eve 1989. You know, I, I watched it when it was transmitted with my mum um after nearly a month of pleading. That, you know that I that I would be able to stay up and, and watch this because I seem to remember it being quite heavily trailed, usually on a Sunday I think after the sort of nine o'clock drama, which would have either been, I think London's Burning or Poirot possibly, and then following that you would have this trailer of a man going around the house, you know, mist screams. I remember there was a shot of him coming down the staircase in the in the trailer to get the axe, so I was kind I, I was kind of transfixed by this. Now I hadn't ever seen a ghost story before, so I'd asked you know and pleaded for for weeks you know could I stay up and watch it? And I think eventually my mum said she would. She would sit with me and, and watch this this ghost story, and we both enjoyed it. You know, sorry, how um, how old were you? I was ten. You're ten, okay. Yes. Okay. So I think. Parenting responsibilities mm. back in the 80s were slightly different. I will uh, tell you about this. I mean, uh, when I was about um, nine years old, I sat up with my mum to watch Saturn 3. Uh, the Martin Amis themed science fiction movie with the rapey robot, you will remember. In I, 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 my own running memory of that is the bloke who gets ripped to pieces in the ceiling at the beginning. In the first scene. And yeah. we just watched the whole thing through. And my mum really enjoyed it, which I think, yeah, let's move on. Anyway, move on. Woman in Black. Yeah, uh, so that, that was the first experience. That's when I saw it. And I was certainly aware of it beforehand because um, the, the excitement of it, of something new. And I hadn't seen a ghost story before. Ah, so why were you particularly excited? To, to... I, th- I think because I'd read ghost stories, and but I'd never encountered a television drama or a film at that point about ghosts. It was all Peter Cushion, Christopher Lee, Hammer Horror. That's, mm-hmm. that's what my staple diet was but I'd never experienced this this particular uh, genre so I was I was very keen to see it and then of course immediately regretted it um, afterwards absolutely traumatized um, my mum I remember she had to I, I, I physically when when that scene happened the scene that we've just spoken about I remember physically going from the sofa and, and being on, being on the floor and of course, it went to advert break, and my mum was telling me, "No, that that's it. You know, you need to go to bed, and yeah. you know, we can't watch anymore." And I, I, you know, I remember saying, "No, I've got to see this because I need to know that it turns out okay." Oh, oh God! God, <laughs> it doesn't. And of it course, doesn't. it doesn't. Oh, God! You know, so um, that that and uh, you know that Christmas Eve was ruined, Christmas Day was ruined, and um, Kim. <laughs> 
<laughs> Kim Kim Newman uh, wrote something recently. Uh, it was it's absolutely true. He says that you are still scared the next day. Um, yes. And I, I remember Christmas yeah. dinner. I remember watching it getting dark outside, not helped by, by the fact that I did live in a 17th century house at the time. It could have been Eelmarsh House. Wow. My, da my dad was the caretaker and groundskeeper um, of an estate in Fife in Scotland. So I stayed in a 17th century three-story house and I expected Pauline Moran to be around any corner. So yes, it was uh, that. That's my first experience of it, and and everlasting. It's never left me since, you know. So we go from that, and if we fast forward to now, you're writing what I'm imagining will be becoming the definitive work on this particular. Well, I, you know, I wouldn't want to say definitive. Um, it really it depends on how much I'm able to to gather. Um, I've been very lucky. I've kind of. I've fallen into this um, and it all kind of started when I, I managed to get hold of the, the screenplay drafts of Nigel Neal's script, um, which I'd been kind of, I, I, I wanted to access for so long. And um, I, just because I was interested and almost convinced that he would have it spot on from the first draft, you know, from draft number one, uh, we would have pretty much what we see on the screen. And in some respects, that's true. Um, even down to dialogue, um, you know, it appears at the right place at the right time as we see it on TV or in, you know, as it, as it, as it stands now. Um, but there are differences, you know, so, it, you know, there's four different drafts and after draft number one, we really, we really kind of get what we have on screen today. And when I got that, I, you know, I was also annoyed at the time there was no, kind of retrospective on The Woman in Black. It hadn't been re-released. Very, very few writings on it. Um, and I, I kind of thought, you know, it would be a, you know, a BFI book or something, something would be written someday covering mm. quite extensively uh, production and analysis of the film. And it just never happened. And it was coming up to 30 years. So I got this... John's sorry. essay on it is one of the few things online that he yes. John, John, which wound up in my book. Yes. very few things that was done that's right fact. yeah and and very good it is too i mean anything that is written about it um you know it is generally substantive and, and important but not not very much out there so i got frustrated at that and then a, a little bit of arrogance thinking well well maybe i could do something and i had a bit of bravado, bravado and a glass of wine and emailed um the john mayer production design company who were involved in, in constructing sets and designing the film. And uh, lo and behold, got a reply saying that John Bunker was involved and worked on the production. And, uh, you know, with a contact email address, I then emailed. And the next thing I knew, I'm in London in his house talking to him about, you know, the, the actual design of the film. You know, so it, it's just kind of snowballed. Um, and it's hard to know what the book will look like if I'll get enough information to have a complete making of, which would be my ideal approach, or if it'll be part monograph, part making of, part interviews. I, I, I really don't know yet. You know, the book's in several bits and pieces. Um, how it comes together, you know, is it's yet to be seen. Uh, but it will. I'm determined to, to, um, to make sure that something comes of it. 
have you interviewed um presumably the majority of people uh, still left still left with us yeah so uh john bunker and anne malo uh who were involved in the set design and uh, dressing of a film uh, and i have to say the design of the films for for tv of that time um, you certainly know where the money went because you yeah. know, that, that, that every scene is filled to the brim of period detail. Um, and then Polly Moran, um, um, I interviewed Polly Moran, who was very gracious with her time. Um, and, you know, we've, we've stayed in touch since, you know, a couple of times, emailed back and forth, you know, um, and it, that, that was surreal. You know, I was speaking to the woman that terrified the life out of me. And, and won't apologize for it um, <laughs> and all these years later and she's so lovely i'll tell you what that you know i i have this great interview with polly and i'm really happy with it i hadn't done this before so i had an app on my phone um to record our conversation and when i eventually played it back i realized i lost the first 10 minutes I don't know, just through some kind of technical problem. So thankfully, the rest of the interview is there. But, you know, I, I sort of I, I sent Polly in the transcript with apologies, saying that, unfortunately, I've lost the first 10 minutes of our conversation. She returned that document, having typed out the first part of the conversation for me. You know, that she she really takes her time and, and you know, yes, yeah, a lovely, lovely person. How wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Have you uncovered anything? You don't have to reveal them here and, and uh, for spoilers for your book. But have you uncovered anything that was of particular surprise or unexpected that, that, that came out of it? Um, I'm, I'm not sure about surprise or unexpected, but there's, the, you know, in terms of how locations were found, um, ideas for locations prior to the ones being used and uh, being decided upon, um, uh, there's, you know, there's some sort of behind the scenes. Um, bits and pieces of information. Uh, yeah, so I, there, there is there's a few things behind the scenes. It, certainly, sort of dynamics of um, working with Herbie Wise, who uh, another thing that comes through everyone I've spoken to, uh, they talk about how wonderful Herbie was to work with. Uh, absolutely professional. Um, kind and caring and and gave a lot to the actors a lot of space to the actors in, in order to develop their own part you know and not not overly direct them not not be oppressive in terms of direction just allow the performance to happen um and there's, there's a little sign i don't know in, in the film at the station there's a hy's coal merchant sign um and i can reveal that uh, that was uh, john bunker was behind that um, and it didn't go down terribly well uh, when when uh, Herbie arrived on set. You know, he, he, I, I don't know if he found it was a distraction or didn't want anything to distract from scene. But um, I think it was taken taken in good part. But um, I think uh, Herbie Wise was quite surprised to find his own name above the, the railway station. Might he have worried that it would have been perceived as arrogant or something? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard. It's hard to say. But um, uh, yes, the initial reaction was not not a good one. John remembers. John Bunker uh, and Anne Malou, um both remember Herbie fondly. You know, uh, certainly loved working with him. So I think that's testament to the man, really. Mm. And he's well. He's done demonstrably great work. Still, probably yes. best remembered for for I Claudius, but yes. he has. 
he has form with with Nigel Neal uh, in Central. Yes. He has, um, and in the the the, you know, the complete studio based uh, Ladies' Night from what eighty six. Mm. Um, there's uh, you're always restricted when you're doing multi camera TV work, but he gets some real real movement out of mm. those out of those cameras, both in the dining hall scene as he shifts around and in the entrance scene where there's huge depth. That he's going as well, but this is—is is this shot entirely on location? Um, yes. Yeah. So there's there's about someone told me it was about ninety percent uh, done on location, including the house. Yeah. And the in interior of the house is actually the interior of the house that they right. used. Yes, yeah. Um, oh, I yeah. Think I think that, I think the office is the is the set. Is it? The, that's Shepperton. Yes. That's Shepperton. Yeah. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. A film yeah. studio. Yeah. yeah. As well. Yeah. But it was, we're a long way. I mean, Criffin Gifford's meant to be up in the northeast, isn't it? Somewhere? Yes. Yeah. I think in the book. Yeah. Yeah. But we're in, we're in Essex. Is that right? We're in the Essex Marshes. Uh, so Criffin Gifford is on two sides of the, the country. So the oh, village, okay. the village of Laycock is mm. Criffin Gifford. Mm -hmm. And then Malden, uh, the Blackwater Estuary, serves as the causeway, which is the, the same causeway used in the the remake, the, the, the Hammer film, production. Yeah. Um, um, and I think it was used recently in a, a Sky production, I think, the, the third day. Oh, the, the, oh, the, th the third, uh, yes. yes. The, yeah, the, yeah. Their, their folk horror with the interactive middle, middle one, not yes. interactive, but with a, kind yes. of day-long performance, yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, they've certainly found, they certainly found the, 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 the mark with that. Do you know how long that search went on for to find to find that particular cause? Because um, that's, they, that's almost a character in itself. Yeah, absolutely. I think, well, back then, they were exploring various options and running out of time, really. Um, and at that time, the, the causeway it was very lucky to be discovered. And I'll talk about in the book how, how they actually came across it. But they, that was in the days before Google Maps. And, you know, you, you weren't able to see satellite you know, views of United Kingdom. So there was a lot of um, exploration around Norfolk, Suffolk, um, looking at uh, kind of flat sort of wasteland uh, areas and then eventually came across Malden pretty much last minute and as soon as it was discovered the, the causeway was discovered and the island which they also used um, they you know there was a phone call I think to Chris Burt to say you know we've got the location we know where we're going so so it was quite an interesting story behind that you know and I'll, I'll sort of speak about that more in the book um, but yeah there was kind of last minute I think the house as well I think the house was uh, not from my material, but I think it's on record that they found the house very last minute as well. That's the uh, Stanleek Park estate, which is now a, a wine um, manufacturer. I think they, they have uh, vineyards there. Um, so I think that was very last minute, but on the opposite side of the country. So the house is on one side of the country and then the causeway is on the right on the other side yeah so well that that fog hides a multitude of sins it's the yeah. list of the frets <laughs> yeah. as we as we yes. get to know that's a that's a that's a useful one from hiding what normally in the old days you could just like look at you know 405 or uh, 625 lines and that can cover what you what you what you don't yes. see but there's a lot of use of and yeah such 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 such, such atmosphere well she had one mourner anyway I saw no one. Oh, she was inside the church and then waiting outside. I thought she looked unwell, but she's there now. Perhaps somebody ought to go and have a word with her. No one. No. Go, go. 
Get away! Get away from Quick! Get, get away from here! Mr. Petrel, what's wrong? They shouldn't shouldn't watch like that. It's not be allowed. It's morbid curiosity. You're right. I, I, I have a mind to speak to the school teacher. Look, you frightened that poor woman away. What? She's gone. Uh, had you been, were you, are you, what were you, are you a, a Nigel Neal fan generally? Controversially, maybe for this podcast, no. I mean, I wasn't very familiar with, with Nigel Neal. Um, you know, I talk about now, you know, I think things have changed. I've become, I've been exposed to his work through The Woman in Black. It's thanks to The Woman in Black that I initially became interested in Nigel Neal, but I'm not the expert. Um, you know, the first time I saw Beasts was when it was released on DVD. Mm. Um, the Crunch as well, you know, the, these kind of production I'm only seeing now, really. Quatermass was probably through the Hammer film. Yeah. was probably my only yeah. other exposure yeah. to Nigel Neal. Um, and of course, Halloween 3, which, which I'm a big fan of. And I, mm. I, I know he isn't or he wasn't pleased with, um, he wasn't pleased with the violence, I think. And Halloween three, but I suspect there's quite a lot in there that's still Nigel Neal. You know, I don't think I don't know if anyone else knows this, but I, I and it's only suspicions on my part. But I think that there's a large part of that film. It's very much a, a Nigel Neal film, and that, that's that's how I view it. But um, but no, in in terms of asking your question, answering your question, sorry, um, it's no. I mean, it wasn't there wasn't a great amount of Nigel Neal output no. when I was growing up. You yeah. know. Mm. In the way there was in the late fifties and sixties, and, and, yes. and, 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 and well, the early twenties, all the seventies. But it, yep. that again plays into what I said earlier about it's it's generally not known. I didn't know when I first saw it. Well, I was eleven, but I didn't know. I'd seen you know Quatermass in the Pit, the Hammer, the Hammer film, which had also had an effect on me. Me thinking because yep. Hammer was you know, was was gothic silliness uh, by by the by 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 the eighties. You know, um, Taste the Blood of Dracula is not a scary film. You can watch it and enjoy it. So it yes. But when I first saw Quatermass and the Pit, the Hammer Quatermass and the Pit, mm. this is something different. This is unsettling yep. in, a, in a way I'm not entirely sure. Now, I never knew that was the same writer or the same, mm. the same actor as well. But it's, I think that goes into, it's a, it's a surprise when some people realise that it's, that, that, it, that it's Nigel Neal. Also just because mm. people don't really associate Nigel Neal as much with the 80s. But it's, I mean... As a as a, an original piece of work, Susan Hill's novella has has proved incredibly in, 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 incredibly fruitful. Have, uh, I'm assuming you've you, you, if you read the original story. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And um, I still gather how, although the story is the the same the, the, the same basic narrative, the structure of it is in, is entirely different. Mm -hmm. I was genuinely surprised. I read it far far. Um, more recently than I than I than, than I saw to see that it was it's told in flashback. Yes. So you, so you immediately know Kips, not Kid. Mm -hmm. um, Nigel Neal seemingly Nigel Neal seemingly offended that someone dare use uh, an HG an HG Wells character's name. Um, survives. So that's the first thing you know. The first thing you know the straight off. Uh, um, and I was genuinely surprised. I thought one of the uh, one of the little things was the woman in black pursues you. She she doesn't now when you watch you know you know you watch Jayhawker that becomes mm. that becomes something of something of a thing the ghost doesn't play by the rules it's meant to be a, I sorry, was actually I, going to talk about that yeah well we, later well, we, on okay we can come on but yeah that's but we'll, uh, we'll, yeah sure okay um, 
so it was that was that was uh, my initial surprise was realizing well he has to he, he has to sell her and the kid presumably die but he, but, but he doesn't that took me out a bit uh, because it removes the 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 immediacy but the second thing was um it was inconsistent i feel with its the use of the children like if, if memory serves in the novella um sam Tuvik or whatever they his, 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 whatever they, they they call this a different surname, uh, but they have grown up kids that moved away that are mentioned that are mentioned mm. in passing. Whereas here, it's very much they had a kid that they don't talk about because he died or the the child died young, and that that overhangs the general thing of what the inhabitants of Criffin Gifford don't talk about. They don't mention, and you see the rows of um, small graves but the solicitor doesn't turn around and say well, when even when even when kids say look look that woman over there he won't look just so he can't mm. as well from that to the uh, when he saves the gypsy child uh, from bit from being crushed by the logs um and it's the unspoken you shouldn't really have done that you've mm. you've, met, you've messed with something you don't and, and that's not there that's not there in the novelization and i was genuinely i was i was genuinely surprised about that and it's it seems a bit like a pastiche of a, just a, 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 a straightforward Edwardian ghost story that's that's stretched a bit too thin compared to say an M.R. James story, and I don't think it holds. And this is infinitely, infinitely better. But you know. it's, it's interesting that the um, the Hammer version, which, as I understand, Susan Hill likes better than the Nigel Neal version. But the Hammer version does actually preserve the bad ending of Nigel Neal's story. It the, changes it, though, doesn't it? It changes it. Yeah. The, the, the father and child are killed by a train rather than in a boating accident. But they, it, it, it has a bad end. It, it's, it's a bit more it's a bit more floaty and everything and a bit more sort of like supernatural and lots of orchestral music <clears> and things, but a bit more over the top. And it's just nowhere near as good. But it still maintains, it still wants to chill in the more. And I, I wonder to what extent the makers of the Hammer version actually were aware of the Herbert Weiss version. Do, do you know, do you know Robert? I think there must have been some awareness of, of the previous version. <clears throat> in terms of what they were aware of or who was aware of what, I, I'm not sure. I think there was certainly a clause in the the rights to re-release the, the 1989 version. And there was a clause in the, the you know, the, gosh, I'm trying to think of the term. Um, in terms of the agreement of uh, having the Hammer film go out, I think the other versions were to be suppressed. Um, mm. so, so there's no competing uh, version out there, really, uh, which I think sadly sort of delayed the release of the 1989 version until recently. So in certain in terms of contract, I think there's you know there was an understanding of those previous versions, but I don't know about the produ production team and how much they knew about it. I, what I would say is that I don't I'm not a big fan of the Hammer end the ending. I think the, the you know it, it takes it was was redemption in that ending in that yes, yes they're killed but they're reunited. Yeah, you see, you see their ghosts wandering off into the, yes. into the cloudy shadows of the oh, afterlife. God, you do, yeah. 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 yeah, and there's also a, a sort of gothic romance about the tragedy, tra the, tra the, yes. the, the, the tragedy it's of romantic. the death. Romantic, yeah. In the way that I still remember the um, actually even more, I think, than the 
than the um, most welcome ad break in, in, t- in TV history mm. is uh, Pauline Moran standing on the water at the, yes. at the very end. And they do that, sit, they, do, they show Rawlings shocked face. And then I think it's like a series of stills as they cr- not quite crash Zoom, because that would be that would be great. A series of as they close in on she's standing there and just looking in hate with hatred. And it doesn't matter where you go, it doesn't matter if I time and space don't matter. You're... And it doesn't matter whether it's fair or not. No, no, no. It's as well. Rawlings has done nothing. cruel. Rawlings has done nothing. Sorry, yeah. Uh, Kits has done, or Kid, sorry, has done nothing wrong other than have a kid. That's his, that's his crime. Yeah. And think... stop a child from dying. Yeah. I think he's so yeah, likeable. He's so likeable. And, you know, Adrian Rollins plays him well. And he, he's, the, he's the ultimate good man. You know, he, he cares about other people. You get a sense of that in the office at the beginning. I think there's much to be made of Mr. Is it Mr. Girdler, who, yeah. you know, old Sniffy he's referred to because the constant sniffles that he has. Um, yeah, you know, Riddell, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, there's a genuine care for the man by Arthur, you know, in these opening scenes. So we, I think we immediately buy into to Arthur Kidd as being someone who we don't want bad things to happen to. Mm. He's was criticised for being too nice. Exactly, to the, yeah. The, yeah. The, the clerks, clerks, yeah. One of whom is a young Stephen McIntosh. And, yes. and the other one is a young Andy Diamond. Yes. Uh, who's on the, he's on the comedy. This is one, one, of his, one, of his, one of his very, 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 very first jobs. But yeah, it's a good indication of like, the oldest listeners don't like it because no one will take you seriously if you're nice to basically your, your inferiors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's a, sort of a world he's, he's come into. And you have to. Yeah. yeah, cultivate authority. I think Cult- he says. Cultivate authority. Yeah, yeah. Yes. he won't yeah. be taken seriously and do yeah. the job you need to do. And like they show him, isn't he working on uh, and seemingly a sort of Jandice esque case of um, a, a, a man who has a lung disease because of the because of the First World War, which is essentially unwinnable. But it keeps coming back in and keeps trying and keeps pushing because you know you're given those. And Neil is brilliant at the the colouring of the character um, by using really minor, really minor characters, like, like the coughing yeah. World, World, War, World War I veteran, like Trevor Cooper's farmer, who's, mm, you know, yeah. who you basically, you get the similar thing that you do in, say, yeah, uh, Trevor Cooper actually described this as a, a st- as stay on stay on the road uh, character, echoing Brian Glover in, in, in American Werewolf. Um, but he's, he's not unfriendly. He's gruff and he's common. Uh, but it's just like sit you down, boy. Uh, you're fine. Like you're 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 fine here. Uh, and you know, there's a great all that scene basically is is an info dump. There's an info dump character mm-hmm. that that he gets, but he gets enough out of it, and you as a viewer get enough out of it that you understand a bit more of the bit more of the life of the village. And it's it's those and, characters. And also, you get the impression that Sam Tooby is also not 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 well liked as well, which is quite. An interesting point as well, the fact that you've got this otherwise sympathetic and helpful guy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he doesn't help himself with that as well. I think that he's quite honest about that. You have the Bernard Hepton bit, po- that post-dinner sequence where where Tuvi and, and, and Kid are sort of, why do I do what I do? Because I can. And like the accumulation of power for its for its own sake, the accumulation of wealth and land that I don't really, it's just something that I do. And that sort of speaks, I think, and, and you can correct me if you can. Doesn't he call it hobby? Yeah, but it, it, it speaks of something empty, something missing. There's something. There's something lost in his life. Yes. 
I can't stop. I can't be down because and playing in because Neil layers upon layers upon layers of this stuff of, you know, uh, we're empty and the wife, the like, Fiona Walker's character is like, is one, uh, is one bat is one plate drop away from a nervous breakdown. Um, she's bottled up those those emotions and they're not they're not happy they're not unhappy but there's tragedy there there's pain there and mm. he externalizes that with with economic power um and i think that's that's says 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 a vast amount in a really economic way and that's that's one of neil's that's one of neil's great strengths absolutely other thing he does really well um and i don't know if this is in earlier drafts of the of the um of, of the script, Robert, but um, as well as inventing decent characters to do info dumps, he creates a much more interesting way of um, dropping information when when kids on his own by the uh, by the the, the, the the wax cylinders. Yes. So one, you can basically get uh, the cat, um, Alice uh, uh, um, Alice Drablo is uh, is able to be given voice for for one. You get the um, um, but you get an excuse for why he can he can learn certain things. Certain things he does. Was that in there from the start? You know? uh, yes, if I if I re remember correctly, that's been from the very first draft, and it's a very clever device. You know, the Edison phonograph is able to give you that exposition, but in a yeah. really interesting way. It is, yeah, and quite a frightening way. I remember mm. there's there's one line of dialogue, and it gave me the shivers as a ten year old. But you know, last night was a bad night. You know, she did not come till four in the morning. Mm. And then it was bad. It was a bad night. And there was this real kind of fear, you know, that I got from that. So it was a very clever device, not a boring way to, to dump information at all. It was, it was absolutely up there with one of the great strengths of that screenplay. It, it's, it's wonderful, actually, um, that, you know, and obviously, as I understand it, that's not in Susan Hill's novel, which I haven't read. But I was immediately reminded of the fact that the gothic tradition in its later manifestation from like the late 19th century through to the early 20th century was very much an ultra modern tradition so you look at things like the hound of the baskervilles which was contemporary you look at dracula where there are entire sections which are transcribed from wax cylinders and things like that you know the, the wax cylinder recording being an ultra modern thing we, we forget that in the gothic tradition because of the 50s and 60s roger corman the hammer movies um and so on but you have this period right right up until you get to like the you know the i think the the sort of like ultimate extent of that is the 1920s pulp writers you know you got your lovecrafts and that who are all about ultra modern science and things and I like that one of the things about the Gothic tradition of this period is that a lot of these things are very empirical, very solid. M.R. James's stories feature um, ghosts that are anything but insubstantial. They're always material, they're always hairy, they have a weight to them. Even when um, it, even when Mrs. Drablo's sister's ghost is um, floating in the air, she is solid, she is there. You have the ghost who remains there in the background for quite some time. She's there in the graveyard and she's in the graveyard and you look back and she's standing over the shoulder. And it's clear that like 
if the other guy turned around, he would see her too. And he doesn't want to. He knows she's there. And he there. doesn't want to. He, he knows she's there, but yeah. he would see her too. Yeah. It's a very, very sort of empirical, scientific, falsifiable, replicable kind of haunting. Uh, a thing that has has a kind that, that's provable and it's it's real in that sense you know later on I mean some of the some of the great folk horror films and some of the greater later horror films you sort of always have the kind of like is this in my head or not kind of thing going on you think of the vampire and let's scare Jessica to death you know at what point is it real at what point is Jessica just being scared to death you know um you but you look at Oh, I could probably think of something more literary and important than that. Um, well, I was thinking of uh, Baby. If we go, from, oh, Baby. Nothing happens to anyone else other than Paula Bowser's character. Um, On the other hand, mm -hmm. the Nigel Neal piece that this reminds me of, because it reminds me of several things, but the Nigel Neal piece it reminds me of is the Stone Tape. Sure. In and in fact, also at one point, he says, after hearing the death of the family, the death of the Strablo's sister and the, the crash, family, yeah, yeah, the yeah, crash, yeah, the screams yeah. over and over again. I think it's, is it the third time or the second time? He says, maybe it's a recording. Mm. It would be easier to handle if it was or something like that, doesn't it? I, I yes, remember. but it, it, it does, but very specifically, um, the, the, haunting, the haunting in the stone tape is residual. It's yeah, only it's then the twist then becomes when they what's wipe, underneath wipe that layer and what's you know here there is the haunting is anything but residual the haunting is that is the most physically threatening um, and indeed yeah but what that the um the sequences about as, as Robert said which last night was a bad night did for me which I I certainly uh, I can remember the fear at the time but I certainly not thought about consciously until I saw much later is that oh shit the woman in black isn't Alice Drablo. Yeah. Sort of, sort of assumed the dead woman was the ghost. No, the dead woman was already being haunted by by that by by by, by that ghost. And well, which a, brings us like, back yeah. to a lot of the social concerns that Nigel Neal has as well. Like Alice Drablo isn't a bad lady. No, no, she does. And in fact, she did something very kind. Mm -hmm. But she she took in her sister's um illegitimate child and the the shunning of Alice Drablo isn't because she's a monster it's because she's haunted mm. it's because she's a victim September the 9th Keckwick brought the heavy cart with things for winter oil and coals and food in tins he is a good man, and I pay him well, too. Last night, she was troublesome all about the house, but I do not mind her. I will not. I will Last not. I was awakened before my clock struck three. Much tumult in the other rooms. I called out using her name, but no answer. I think she cannot answer. When she came last night, I mocked at her. I will not be feared of my own kin. My own kin. 
It, it's a is a not more, and I may be wrong because it's been a while since I've read the book. Um, is there are the relationships uh, detailed? Does anyone anyone know? In I've, the book? It, I've, I've read it once about three years ago. And yeah, I've never read so it. Um, seems to, uh, yeah, there's certainly the illegitimate child, and obviously the tragedy of that child being taken away is there in the book. I would need to re-examine just how you know how accurate that is in comparison to the adaptation. Yeah, but I, I like I like that Neil basically brings that out. I, I mean, Neil is fairly fairly clear about it without hammering you over the head with it. And uh, I think that Alice Drablo being a victim mm. is actually very chilling. It is actually very chilling, and it's chilling on a wider sense because immediately the more you think about it, the sense that why did she end up with no friends? Why did no one want anything to do with her? that sense of unfairness that basically permeates the whole thing. And I think for me personally, the most, the scariest things in horror movies and in ghost stories are where the hauntings are just unfair. They just, you know, they're not anyone's faults, but they're visited upon people who really don't deserve it. And the fact that it's been visited upon poor old kid because he doesn't deserve it. But it's also been visited upon Alice Drablo. So he is essentially in uncovering an unfair haunting, he's drawing it upon himself equally unfairly. Is it worth thinking about as well, which something I doesn't get talked about, and Robert, I don't know if you'll, you'll again may cover this. There are two ghosts. There is the ghost of there the child. There are two ghosts, yeah. There are the ghosts of the child. And the ghost of the child seems mischievous, but in no way malevolent, as far as we know, whether the child always acts as a harbinger for, 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 for Janet, for the, for the woman in black. Um, but, you know, there's the giving the toy, the laughing, um, but there's always the idea that where the child is, the woman in black, Janet Humphrey, will come. Um, and if the child has locked on to kid, or the child may lock on to anyone that arrives at your Marsh house, and that's ultimately why no one, no one goes there, because she'll get you, or she if she won't get you, she'll get your kids. Um, and that's I, I don't know if that's um, something that's good to so uh, talk about, but that's something that. Less gets talked, it doesn't get talked about as much, I don't think, in connection with this story. That there's a ghost of the child as well as the ghost of, of Janet. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. There's, you know, the main focus is the woman in black. We don't often talk about Nathaniel, who is the, the auditory ghost. Mm. And I suppose he doesn't, I mean, he doesn't show up really until, you know, more than halfway through the, the film. Um, so it's only when Arthur enters the nursery, that's the first time that we hear Nathaniel, and then the second time, and last time is, you know, preceding that moment uh, where she arrives across the bed, you know, mm. facing right, bearing right down onto Arthur. So um, I, I, certainly mischievous, there's certainly a sinister giggle just before Arthur becomes, you know, gets that fright of his life, and the rest of us do as well, seems to indicate a sort of playful, mischievous, you know, mischievous behaviour. But um, in terms of, I think the woman in black appears 
first and foremost. I mean, she she's from very early on, and and it's very much you know don't don't look at her, don't see her, otherwise yeah. but, you know your a child's going to die. You know, and that you know that goes to Pepperell, you know, in the churchyard when he's denying that she's even there by not mm. looking. Yeah, you know, and then he shoes the children away from the the wall, yeah. tell them, you know, tell them. So I think it's it's hard to know if it's you know if it's the child that's you know instigating the tragedies or the woman in black is doing it. I think for me, it's more the woman in black. She's behind, and and Nathaniel's locked on to Arthur because he's in the house. But um, my my sense is, if you see her, then you know, something mm. bad's going to happen. That's... I mean, to what extent is the woman in black actually Janet so much as um, a sort of like larger, more malevolent force that goes beyond who well, she was? Yeah, I mean... And, I mean, this brings me back to J-horror as an idea. So, you know, and because and, the thing that the woman in black reminded me of this morning was Ring, mm. actually. Um, partly because of the sort of like contemporary technology that is a bit dated because in the past, but partly because you have the ghost of someone who themselves was a victim in a certain way, who then visits terrible vengeance upon people who know, even people who are compassionate, even people who are compassionate towards the original source of the ghost. Um, the ghost then becomes this sort of force of, well, you say force of nature, not really nature, is it? Um, but a force that, that, that inflicts a cosmic injustice and yeah. can perpetuate a cosmic injustice upon things that the injustice visited therefore needs to be repeated and it will never be satisfied it won't be but you can defer it in the ring can't you you can pass it on and if you pass it on in perpetuity yes there is some redemption for you personally not for yes not yes. Not, not, not 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 for the guys actually reminded me and you, you're, you're right in what you say the first thing it brought to mind was uh, when i watched the film was was uh, the grudge because the ghost appears in the bed, impossibly. Uh, and yeah, that, yeah that, under that, the duvet. Right. Yeah. Man, that's a scene. Yeah, that's the, that. But it, that 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 most recalled it. But I think um, the idea, the, the 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 true terror of an idea of the ghost that will lock onto you and pursue you, not not a sense of place, uh, and carrying with it all it does is um, is trauma. It's it's in it's it's something that's in your head. It's not. It's physically out of there. But like trauma. Uh, you can't you can't run away from no. from being haunted um, if the haunting is 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 your own trauma and it's like the woman in black is a personification of trauma and like trauma she'll follow you and potentially destroy you um, unless you can deal uh, with it. it's a bleak ending and there is there is no but the, the, in, in in the wider sense it's something you can't hide from it makes it something inescapable. It, yeah, and, and I mean, the difference, speak, speaking as someone who experienced the difference between anxiety and trauma in terms of mental health terms is that anxiety is the fear that something, that the worst might happen. And you get past it by basically getting around the fact that the worst might not happen. But trauma is the knowledge that the worst has happened and it might happen again. 
and that's a lot harder to deal with and so the fact that the woman in black you're absolutely right the woman in black is trauma in that respect what was your first um reading of the when you okay sorry your first reading i suppose was being a, a very scared a very scared 10 year old but from going from that 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 point to writing a book on it when did you become when did it become uh, your sort of go to your 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 go to drama or your, your go to text as it were so when when did it become something that i replayed you mean john yeah, sorry sorry yes i mean yeah. I, I was gonna say, some, some when it when it became something that you were a fan of is that we yeah. understand the world something yeah. I, I was i don't want to say obsessed because that sounds pejorative yes some, yeah. some something that had a particular interest in possibly it. accurate with the obsession but um it's <laughs> you know after it was taken away from me you know i had taped it it's quite an archaic term now isn't it tape mm. um but i i was told that i had to record over it I wasn't to see it again you know such was the impact it had that night so it went from my life you know i think it was a james bond film i was taping on the same tape and i, I was watching the recording and just knowing that it was disappearing you know and i had the sense then that uh, i wouldn't see it again for some time which turned out to be true um, until i managed to track it down on video um through a video search company and uh 93 1993 94 around the same time it re-aired actually on channel mm, four okay. um and then then i became the fan you know because um i was i had a better understanding of the direction the, the pacing i mean the pacing's tremendous you know a sustained tension throughout the film yeah. almost from the the word go right right from the beginning um you know you get these subtle hints from sam tuvey and uh, mr sweetman about the, the you know arthur's going to a bad place you know so there's a building of tension throughout so that's expertly done um the set design struck me you know when i when i rewatched it you know i couldn't believe just how well designed the film was uh, even down to the score which bizarrely you know rachel portman's score was jingling around in my head after one viewing in 1989 and such was time then that you you know there was no internet you couldn't you couldn't really access things uh, or see things quite on demand um but that's bizarre to have a you know a theme a sort of music box melody still be in my head after one viewing four years later it was only when i saw it again that i realized that's where the piece of music right. was from if it does that make sense you know so yeah that's i mean i became a fan in my teens and from there i've just you know it's it's actually it's for me it's it's a christmas memory now which is mm. quite bizarre <laughs> when you think how traumatic it was but i remember the I, I remember the smells of shortbread i remember the christmas lights and it's sort of comfort of having mum and dad and you know and mum and i shared the enjoyment of the woman in black we so she took me to see the stage show which i was lucky mm. enough to see with frank finley who was just oh wow yeah. yeah he i mean his performance utterly haunted man you know and the, the beautiful blue eyes that he had these kind of striking eyes that he had it was tremendous so you know we saw that together um we used to talk about it and then rewatch it you know and um so there's a real christmas memory about it and and mum sadly got ill recent recently in the last couple of years with rapid onset of dementia and just as i was starting to 
to get pieces together for this research. I was going to London and she had an idea of what I was doing and I was doing something with the woman in black. Um, but very quickly after that, you know, she she didn't really sort of have any recall of what I was doing. And then obviously COVID hit and, and sadly mum passed away a couple of, couple of months ago. So it's it's become something else now. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's transcends everything about, you know, it's not just something I love, but it's something I've carried with me all these years. And, and when I look back, it's on, when I put it on, it's a comfort now, which is strange because it's a terrifying piece of television, but it's comfort viewing. It takes me back to a time when things, you know, in childhood, you know, and a lot of things do that. Music does that, you know, TV production, films, you, you're reminded of childhood. So, yes, I've become a fan, but, and I don't want to personalise it too much because I have no ownership or, or gatekeeping over The Woman in Black at all. But it means so much to me as a production. I love it. Well, it sounds also like it's become a really, really personal project uh, yes. as, as well, which doesn't stop it being an inaccessible project, but it's something, I think, for an extra layer of, of motivation. And that and the sound, I mean, Rachel Portwood would go on to, to with an Oscar for Emma, I think. Um, I think she was nominated for a BAFTA for this for, 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 for this soundtrack. But there's that, and I'm, it's one of those, it's some of the best productions, certainly in in the sci-fi or the, or the, the horror genres, ghost story genres. Sometimes, you know, there's a crossover between sound effect and, and, and music mm -hmm. as to, to create the mood. But there's that slight vibration whenever the woman in black appears and um, kid grabs the back, like, touches the back of his neck, like her, her appearance creates a physical reaction. And particularly uh, when it, I think it happens for the third time when he's outside, he's going to be, he's been in the generator, he's, he's outside, he'll wash house, he turns around. And that's the first time you get a closer look yes. at, 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 at Humphrey and, uh, and there's the hate in, in Paulie Moran's eyes. Um, but I've seen that scene recreated in some recent stuff. I think and I saw it in um, uh, a film I saw on the film festival called Shepherd. And I don't know if it was a direct homage, but it's, it's, there's a very similar scene. Early in the film, it's a dream sequence of a man on a moor. Um, and he turns around and there's a to facing similar in the framing of the, that Wise does with, uh, with the back of, of 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 Rachel Rawlings on the right, and then Moran facing in, more in depth in the field, uh, further back in the field, but but facing, and there's that. Little, there was a similar shot in that, but it hadn't been earned, and it was too. And I thought, why doesn't why doesn't it work? But yet the the woman in black works, and I think it's because the sound comes in for the third time, and the first time you see it, it's slightly weird. She's just in the church. That's not. You know, it's 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 an acceptable image. She's dressed in mourning. She's in a church. Unusual, but not particularly remarkable. Later on, she's outside, and Warren's um, noticed her again. But again, she's in black. It's just a few moments later. She could have physically walked. Mm -hmm. It's only the third time after he's seen the reaction of of some of the people around him, and you know. <laughs> without any art without any doubt that now this is a malevolent supernatural force uh and that but that and therefore that scene is a culmination of a build-up and it's been earned rather than just shown out of context and i think that and, it, and, it, and, and this film um, shepherd does it without context it doesn't earn the shot so it just becomes a figure on a 
It does something later interesting with a, a stone and a person sort of mixing them up, and that works much better. But after you've got a sense of place and time and environment and and, in, and atmosphere, but here just outside this one, yeah, and, and, and it's and wise seems to know that as you and as you say, it's beautifully pitched, it's beautifully paced, um, and it doesn't let up. It isn't that like and like M. R. James using landscape so so so, so well and that desolate causeway and it is desolate mm. and i think is it andy nyman it may be jeremy dyson but anyway when they both made uh, ghost the film version of of, of ghost stories and he said he wanted to bring those long shots in those desolate shots of it's not the same but it's the same type it's the same type it's the same type of environment it's so the causeway by the way yeah. um it reminded me of the Broomway in Essex. Are you guys aware of that? The Broomway is the most no. dangerous um, coastal path. Oh, that yeah, ah. uh, yeah, that one. The one that if and you actually take pictures of the Broomway look like. Yeah, if you take the wrong turn, you'll essentially die, even though yes. you're even though you're less than ten miles away and from the civilization. Yeah, and it isn't marked. Yeah, that's yeah. I do know what you mean. I couldn't remember the name of it, but yes. That there's that treachery and the idea particularly and this is we haven't talked about some of the individual characters but Keckwick William Simmons Keckwick mm. is is uh, so so important to this because again there's next to no emotion from from William Simmons in that part but he's like you die without him he gets there and he went to see Drablo every he was the only mm. one that went to see Drablo and he did what he needed to do but even he and he knows what's going on and he can, and he can navigate uh, the causeway, and he knows when not to go the causeway. And there's that just that line where just I wouldn't I wouldn't have left you. Uh, like the, the, no way would I have just to, to to stay to stay here. But you're lost. Uh, and he's seen from what he's seen, but he's um, possibly the only one that you get the sense of safety from taking that from taking the journey. You or as a viewer and um, um, uh, kid um, is lost and is. That is lost totally um, and nearly you know, dies um, with a with a, a small um, concession to spider made made his way home, um, but but nevertheless I think that's yeah as a personification of of, of sort of the local landscape, Keckwick might almost be sort of a useful helpful ghost that sort of guides you from one place one place to the other and crucially was the only was the only member of Griffin Giffords uh, or an inhabitant of Griffin Gifford that that. Um, Alice. But the worst part, the hardest to take, that is, was the noises, the, the pony and trap in the marsh and the screaming. Right now, I'll be devil's advocate. Suppose I suggest a perfectly commonplace explanation. You can try. There were dense patches of sea fog. Yes. Now, those can distort sound. Blanket some off and let others through. Suppose what you heard was Keckwick's trap on the far end of the causeway, on his way back. About the screams? Seabirds. No. Ah, you're a townie. You don't know what a gull can sound like. They can make cries you'd swear came from, say, a cat or a baby. I wish I could believe that. Do you believe in ghosts? Never have. Why not? 
They were just stories. Made up? Yes. So you're a skeptic. Well, I was until today. She was quite real. I, I felt I could have walked up to her and touched her. Did she see you? Eh? See you? Did she? Like I'm seeing you now? Yes. I'm sure. It was her eyes. She wasn't just looking. She, she was hating. You could tell? It was somehow like a hunger. Kind of dreadful, mad hunger that had all turned to hate. Against you? It felt like that. There was a sort of power coming from her. And that's where you ran. You were scared. Well, she, she, she neither spoke nor came near me. If she was able to make me afraid, well, that was all. I'm going back. To London? No, to the house. You shouldn't go there. Mr. Toovey, I've been entrusted with a job and I've hardly begun it. You shouldn't go there alone. I can find no one to go with me. No. Nobody will. So Nigel Neal uh, didn't have to do very much with that character at all and he chose to do it. You know, I mean, in the book, Kickwick, he really is just somebody that takes Arthur out to the house. But Nigel Neal, just in a few lines, gives, gives him a lot of depth and pathos, I think. Mm. You know, as a man of the land, I think he's clearly um, bereaved by yep. Mrs. Drablo. He, mm. He's lost a sense of purpose maybe now that she's not there. Um, you know, that, that part's made so much more through Neil's writing and William Simmons' performance, which is um, just is, is one of my favourite performances in there next to Bernard Hepton, actually, yeah. um, is Keckwick. And he's only in it for, I, I think I timed it, I think seven minutes is the entire appearance of wow. Keckwick. Wow, okay, really, is I, it? I, I think, yeah, I think I might be slightly off, but it's but seven, nevertheless, but yeah, under seven, 10 yeah. minutes. I think it's seven. Of actual, of actual screen time. Yes. Yeah, and he, he, he leaves such a mark. And I, again, I think that's down to Neil mm. and the writing, because it's all there in the script. And, and Simmons, who, who just doesn't do any more than he needs to with that part. And he doesn't have to, you know, because no. it's, it's, it's delivered perfectly, you know. So, yeah. It's again, I mean, when you watch, say, the film versions of, of Quatermass, they always lose those, those world building. That, that Neil does um, does 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 so, so perfectly. I mean, Quatermass in the pit. You have the start where several workmen. And there's just there's just uh, brief conversations between them. Or you have Vox Pops with member of the public, where he sort of plays with um, with sort of attitudes. And essentially, what Chris Morris will take the piss out of in the nineties with "Speak Your Brains" on the on the on the, on the day stay that becomes sort of real, when they're clearly members of the public don't know what they're talking about, but because he can focus in for a mood or for a, a line uh, that can just speak volumes. And if you give it to if you give those to to good actors, you know, William Simmons is a very very good actor, then it suddenly creates the world. And by creating a wider world, by creating with the verisimilitude, you make the tragedy all the more. Uh, all, 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 the, all, all, all the more impactful because of because of, because you were because you believe you believe in the world the world that you see and that's what's that's that's Neil in a nutshell. All drama is is human reaction to to extreme situations and ghost stories just take pushing that bit further. 
Robert, you talked um, a bit about how the what was what ended up on screen was pretty was pretty much close to the, to the final draft. And when I when we did um, some episodes with with Neil's biographer Andy Murray, he tells the story, or Neil told him the story of um, he wrote it very quickly, uh, and his agent told him to sit on it for a bit because they didn't think it looks good with him looking basically to rush to rush it off. Uh, sat on it and then they all forgot about it and then it was like oh the, the deadline's moving we need it quickly mm. and it's been and it's been done for several weeks but I didn't necessarily know how many different drafts there were of, 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 of after that point do you know of a, is there a is there is it obviously like two or three drafts or is it still going to, to um, I'm aware of four okay. um, so I, I think there's four drafts I'm not aware of anything beyond that I don't really see how we could have any more because it's pretty much as you see on screen from draft number two, really, um, there's, there's minor changes following that dialogue, maybe the, the sequence in, in which something's said. But the biggest changes are from the first draft, which is dated November 1988. There's no specific date in November, but it's, it's November 1988. Um, and I have I've heard the story through Andy Murray's book that, you know, it's very it was quickly written. Mm -hmm. um, to the point that he was asked to hold it back. Um, but yeah, no, in terms of the, the, you know, the sort of mentioned about the book, uh, Susan Hill's book uh, being bookended, you know, the first and last part of the book is the present day and the, the main narrative is flashback. And, mm -hmm. and that that's, exi that's excised from the TV version, but there was an attempt in the first draft that Nigel Neal's right. you know, got a, a, okay. a yeah, he's got a, he's got a present day Arthur kid um, who's you know elderly or older, not maybe not elderly, but and it appears to be set in the fifties if we're going by the same timeline of the um, original Neil version, which very you know very clearly dates it as nineteen twenty five. You know the, the sequence of events is mm -hmm. nineteen twenty five, so it appears to be in the fifties, and it's um, essentially Arthur Kidd in the office now, being the 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 boss. He's he's the man who's running the solicitors' uh, firm, um, and it's it's very short scene, and it, it essentially is allowing Arthur to have a family again. Through uh, he's he's awaiting a visit from. Uh, someone he's in love with and he's nervous about, you know, the acceptance of being involved with another family. I think there's maybe anxiety that he might bring the curse upon other people if he doesn't remain alone. You know, it allows for Arthur to think about the past and then we go to the sequence of events that we know we know from the, the film. And then it finishes with uh, Arthur hopefully gaining a new family through through a new romance and, you know, and that anxiety that he hopes that, that that's the end of it. Hope, hopefully he, he can move on. So that, that means um, Arthur survives the original mm. draft. Um, so the boating accident is still there in the first draft. And there's quite a harrowing sequence when Arthur's underwater trying to reach out to his wife and children. Oh, wow. Um, you know, uh, and it would, be, it would be nice to see that. Um, on on screen, you know, I could you know to visualise it, but I understand why it's gone. Um, you mm. know, it's uh, it's much simpler just to have the narrative run from A to B, um, and and have Arthur, you know, succumb to the same fate as his, uh, as his family. Um, and I suppose the other major change is the gypsy child um, is 
already dead before Arthur manages to, to reach. So, so the child dies. So Arthur doesn't save the child. Right. He recovers the body from underneath the wheels of the truck. Um, right. So, yeah, it was, it was, uh, you know, it seems to say that, you know, Arthur surviving and the child surviving, you know, there's no good can come off these events happening. These, these people are meant to die. So I, I don't know if there's a sense of that, um, mm. but uh, it's understandable why, why they've been taken out, why they've been changed, because um, they don't add terribly much. Um, and I suppose the whole production's tighter without having the sort of bookended present day narrative. Um, One thing um, that I remember when we were talking to Andrew Screen, who's writing a book about beasts, he was talking about Neil's scripts and he, he commented particularly on Neil's incredibly terse but very telling character descriptions. Is this something that you see in the scripts for The Woman in Black? Yeah, it's not something I've, it's not jumped out at me in terms of character description. Uh, oh, that's interesting. I'll go back and, and revisit that. But no, not, not, not something that's been obvious to me. All right. Um, no, it's a very straightforward uh, matter of fact style with his sort of directions and the dialogue is wonderful to read. And I think that's why the dialogue is a lot of it's what you hear on the on the finished production because it's so well written from the from the outset. Right. Um, I, you know, I've not seen screenplays go through four drafts and and basically change very little mm. really before. Um, so again, I think he, he knew what he was doing and he knew he knew from the start. Um, and it's a really good script, you know. Mm -hmm. Also but, that that the ending as 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 I said, it's it's incredibly memorable. It's also when you break it down shot by shot, it's incredibly economic. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and I was just thinking that there where you said that there was there was in the original draft, there was a secret, there was an underwater sequence with mm. Adrian Rowan's character trying to save Glenn's mm. uh, character. Yeah. Um, but the idea of it's just she sees the woman in black, there's a reaction shot, you see uh, you get a sound effect, you mm. see a camera rush up at a branch, you see something hit something at a close uh, close distance, and you see a shot of an oar. Mm. Um, and then you see a long shot to pull up with the boat underground. But at no point do a child or any actors have to lie in the water. Um, and at no point do we have, I mean, anything in a book, it's a, it's a, it's a pony and trap, I think, that the, the, yeah. the bolts and breaks, uh, which you know, would be even more expensive to try and, to try and stage. Um, and here... Let alone a steam train. Well, you could, but you could probably do that again without showing the steam train if, if there was enough fog and, and smoke, but it was just taking what there was on. And I suspect that wasn't so much, I don't know if that was such a, a, much of a, a budgetary decision as it was a tonal decision to, to bring to kid dies with them, uh, that there's no redemption for, 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 for him. But it struck me that, that it's, it's easy to overlook uh, I'm not saying cheap because that's again I think a little pejorative, but how economic um, Herbert Wise was with saying probably you know with the money that's been spent elsewhere, particularly in the in the on the production design, um, that could have been a very expensive sequence to have three three people in a boat that's destroyed by a by a, a branch of a tree and they all perish. And you know um, it doesn't do I think to think about it too much. I mean the implication is they're all killed by the branch because drowning. You know it's 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 not like they're they'd die if they fell out the boat. 
Um, but it doesn't it doesn't matter. You see the symbol, the boat, the bow breaks, the baby falls, um, and they're and they're gone. And it's just a series a series of shots. And it's you know it's effective, but it's it's very it's 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 very economic. I think economics right to describe it. It's certainly not cheap. I think Herbert Wise went to lengths to try and make that sequence a little bit more. Um, will have a bit more of a budget. I think he asked for money actually to have a crane, so you could do a shot bearing down. And there is a shot there of yeah, there's a high Stella, shot, yeah. yeah, the yeah. high shot. I think Stella reaching out to cover yeah. the children as the branch falls, um, and uh, he was refused the money. So I think the story goes. Ah, okay. I think Tony Earnshaw uh, interviewed Herbie Wise, um, and I think and Fiona Walker also confirmed with me uh, what Herbie Wise said in terms of he put his own money forward. To pay for the crane oh, wow. on a on a on a I think it was filmed on a Sunday in in a park in London that I've not been able to identify yet, although I believe it might be Hampstead Hampstead Heath. Um, but yes, yeah, so he put his own money across, and I believe production crew all chipped in. You know, and wow. when I think it was later paid for by the the producer who initially refused. Um, you know, the budget for it once he realised everybody was so passionate about it. You know, uh, they put their own money forward just to achieve this one shot. You know, and again, I think that tells you a lot about that production mm. crew and just the sort of relationships that people must have had with each other, just in terms of, you know, really yeah. wanting to make something good for television. You know, and the regard in which they held Herbert Wise. Yes. As well. It is interesting to sort of see the development of his writing in stylistically, actually, because mm. one of the things that I've you know, obviously something that I've been talking about a lot in previous episodes is the way in which in, from like the, the 60s and 70s work of Neil, you have a lot of scenes where he escalates tension by having people sort of doing short, sharp snatches of dialogue, one after the other, back, back, back and forth. Um, Sycamathia? Stickamithia. Stickamithia. Yes. Sorry, Nearly got it. You get there eventually. <laughs> but yeah, um, uh, but you don't see this so much in The Woman in Black. He seems to have... The, 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 the dialogue in this is, although although it still no, it's has the same sort of more... Slower, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's slower, it's more measured. Mm. Um, he doesn't do this sort of like um, staccato back and forth that is a trademark of his 1970s work so much. I, and I found that it's, interesting. Certainly, it's very sparse dialogue. Uh, and, yeah. and clever, you know, it's, it's a lot about what's unsaid to begin yeah. with. Oh, we, yeah, yes. there's, there's, I, I, there's no one talking in the village about, yeah. you know, sorry. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You know, yeah. this is where this is a, a lot of attention comes from. You know, the Bernard yeah. Hepton, you know, and I think Mark Gatiss has talked about his line as well. You know, oh, yeah. You know, you know, I expect I'll be in and out of Marsh House for quite some time. Do you know, is the response, and yeah. it's just left hanging. So there's yeah. that, you know, there's a richness in just not saying things. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, and I'm not, you know, again, I'm not an expert on Nigel Neal, so I can't claim to have read, you know, manuscripts upon manuscripts of his work. But, you know, if there is that distinction, then it's absolutely markedly different. And the woman in black, you know, yeah. which, I, which yeah. I guess was one of so. one of his last pieces, really. Yeah, um, he did about four things after that. Right. Um, but he did like you know an episode of Kavanaugh, an episode of Sharp. Yeah. Um, his last big project was Kingsley Amos's Stanley and the Women. Mm -hmm. um, but um, 
a, a, a very different beast. It's that's why this is known as his his last great work. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's there's something more conventional about if, if one calls Kingsley Amos conventional. And as as Howard said, there's lots of things to be said about him adapting Bernard Cornwall. Uh, but there, but both the Kavanagh uh, and the, um, the 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 sharp are you know episodes of an ongoing series that he has to fit yeah. within, within certain frameworks here is here and more here more than Stanley and the women he has he has his own head as much I think because you know Ted Charles has got him in and they, they, they have history uh to, to 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 together he's with people that that that, that understand him and work with him that he works that that, that, that he, he that he works well with also but to it, be fair as much as he wouldn't necessarily like to admit it it's his ballpark yeah, really? yeah, it is as well. Yeah, uh, but he he does those things with he doesn't he's, he's got like um an hour and a half go if 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 you like. Whereas Stanley and the Women is is episodic. The other two are like forty five minute dramas. Um, final thing, uh, what are you calling your book? Well, I've gone with Sound Haunting because lovely auditory. Quite mm-hmm. harrowing auditory sounds that came. Funnily enough, uh, I never really hooked into when I watched it as a ten-year-old. I was more scared by the visual presence of Polly Moran, who has very she's very elegant looking, a certain beauty to to her, which piercing blue eyes and and terrifying malevolence. Mm-hmm. So that that's what kind of took me on my first impressions of Women in Black was very much the visual part of things. But later on, I and I, you know, even last night when I watched it again last night, just the sound of those cries and screaming, mm-hmm. and and the water and the horse, um, played over and over. The the thought of that was, you know, the thought of being exposed to something like that would be just horrendous, especially if you're isolated on an island. So that that kind of struck me in later years and sound haunting, I suppose, because Neil has also touched on it before, in in the stone tape, mm-hmm. you know, this replay. This recording that Arthur actually says, you know, that you know, at some point in the film he refers to it as, as if you know he wants it to be a recording, and that's that's what the stone tape is. And so I guess that's that's what that's the current title. I guess it just kind of connects to the use of sound. Um, so yes, that sound haunting, sound haunting is the, the title at the moment. Do you have any form of time scale about when you when you want to complete? Just think it's Nigel Neal's centenary next year. Yes, well, I'm afraid I'm I'm not mm-hmm. gonna I'm not gonna have it ready for that. Okay, um, right. uh, but 2024 is what I've given myself. I've still got a fair amount to do, including locations. I, I want to visit every location used and photograph, you know, a sort mm-hmm. of then and now kind of piece and, and it's taken some time to get every location i've got every single one with the exception of the the final scene which Fuck. i think maybe hampstead heath and if anybody listening can let, let let me know please get in touch but hampstead heath has been regenerated i understand quite a number of times so i don't even know if the pond is going to be in existence anymore um but so with exception of that every location arthur's house i took me six months of Google Street View and sectioning it off various parts of London on a map. So I would score off every street that I explored via Street View. And I managed to get the street in Ealing, actually, where Arthur's house is based, you know. So, so I did a lot of work finding out where things were done. 
um, and I'd like to now go and see them. And it's been cancelled a couple of times due to restrictions. And, of course, uh, yeah. So, so hopefully next year, myself and uh, actually a friend of mine who watched The Women in Black, not on Christmas Eve, but Christmas Day, in the safety of daylight, um, he we we've kind of shared that experience. So he's he's all for this road trip, which will see us. You know, we have to we have to take the car. There's just so many different locations to visit across east to west of England. Really, that's um, marvelous. Yeah, and you're so, you're based in Scotland, I'm assuming. Yes, Fife, yeah. Fife in Scotland. So so quite uh, quite a drive. Incidentally, um, regarding Pauline Moran, I um, watching the woman in black now. I'm like, I know her from somewhere else. I know her from somewhere else, and it wasn't Poirot. Okay, I don't right. remember, and I couldn't think of figure it out, and I just worked it out. She was in the Storyteller. Ah, yeah, yes, Jim Henson yes. series. She played the Queen in the episode which starred Stephen McIntosh and a fantastic, enormous Griffin. Um, which is called um, The Luck Child. Rodney Pugh is in it as well. You know, I know that about it's from, and immediately it's the Queen from the Storyteller, which is a very different part. But she, she has a very distinctive... Um, very distinctive face. face. Uh, yes, she's quite, she's quite beautiful, but in, in, a, in a slightly non-conventional sense. Mm. And she, she gives that so much, she gives so much presence, and there's no dialogue, there's no CGI, there's just makeup and her physical performance it's, it's, yeah, it's and it, it speaks you know again yeah. the performance is just you know it's tremendous i mean i don't mm. think you know that's not an easy thing to do without dialogue is to convey threat and I <laughs> no and if you, sorry go. no i was just was, i actually spoke with pauline about this and you know i said that in the initial scene there's no movement you know at the back of the church she's absolutely still and then in the churchyard there's a, a slight movement but nothing more. And with that expression on her face that is yeah. just frozen. Well, yeah. And it's ghastly that, when, expression. When, when we get that close-up on the island where she yeah. appears again, that's the first direct movement is towards Arthur. You know, it's the first time that she actually moves for him. She yes. actually moves towards him. And his first instinct, as would be my own, would be to run. Mm. You know, the other, you know, there's a real threat there, and that's a it's a clever Which performance. Amazing because it's simply just a woman in a dress and with a hat. Yes. But you I know, think and, and I, I think thinking of this um because I'm doing some work on Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde at the moment. And one of the things about Mr. Hyde in the story is there's nothing wrong with Mr. Hyde immediately, but he has a and this is, this is Stevenson's words, a haunting sense of unexpressed deformity. That is, there's something very wrong, mm. but you can't make it out necessarily. And apart from the fact that she's obviously got very pale makeup, there's something very wrong with an otherwise commonplace character. Because it's literally just a woman standing there in the dress. There are no special effects or anything. But that haunting sense of unexpressed deformity is there and she portrays that fantastically without yeah, that, doing a whole lot that's obvious yes and there's um i know you said you have uh, howard have you seen the stage play stephen malleroux i have not no no uh because premise it's still at the fortune theater where it's been um since the, the early 90s i'm not um, sure how to feel about that as a thing really but but it's on. i mean it's essentially two people um on a stage 
uh, and it's a play within a play. It's someone working through trauma and they say, well, why don't you enact it? And I'll be the, the, um, the actor says, I'll be you and you can play all the parts. So you're immediately taken out and you're thinking, this is not how I expected this to start. And there's a twist with, uh, with the woman. And if people haven't seen it, and if Howard hasn't seen it, we would like to. I won't. I won't go yeah, into okay. to what to what to what to what the twist is. But I see it's been on a curriculum because I've seen the couple of times I've seen it. I've seen um, teenagers there. Um, on it, that. it is. It's, it is. It it's is on fine. GCSE and A level English right. curriculum. I, yeah, and I, people were you know, laughing a bit at it. And you know, I'm still. I'm watching. I'm watching two people on a stage. Yeah, you know, how scary can it be? Like there's going to be no jump cuts. You know, they can turn the lights out, but you know, we're still. I'm very going to be very aware. I'm watching a play. I think the third time everyone screamed, uh, and two kids had to be taken out, and there was an audible "fucking hell" from me. Um, was just <laughs> shit. That was that was that was pretty effective. That first, and the first time I saw it was like shit. That was that was well done. I, and, it is and, interesting. This morning, as I'm watching it, my my teenage daughter, who's just gone on school holidays, walked in. And she's like, what are you watching? And I'm like, the woman in black. And she just leaves the room. She's 14. And she's like, the woman in black, I'm not watching that. Pie. There's just a bit in the stage play where you hear the, there's a sound refrain comes back again. And it's a, it's a chair of rock and horse. I forget that. And then light comes on on the door. And you just hear the sound again. And you saw people go, no, no, no. Um, uh, and it's like, yeah, if you've ever wondered how two people just sitting on the stage with no real furniture uh, and telling you that this isn't real, we're recreating a, a, a play, can be, well, really, it's going to be really, really scary. Uh, and, and it's and if you haven't watched it, uh, still everywhere. And it's a tiny theatre as well. That's why it's, you know, it's 50, yeah, 50, 100 people who could sort of fit in that really small theatre, really small bar, really intimate space. Still proceeding March, fourth wall, um, theatre, but it's really small, really dark, and yeah. So if you ever so there's a there's a, a plug for that's well 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 worth seeing. But seeing it with Frank Finlay, that must have been that must have been something. Yeah, no, very lucky. And I, it was on tour in 1994, and it came to Kirkcaldy, which isn't terribly far from where I live now, um, at the Adam Smith Theatre. And yeah, it was Frank Finlay, and I forget the other actor, but he was in Doctor Who. Greatest show in the galaxy. And he Pee -pee played... McKenna? Yes. Pee -pee McKenna. Yes, yes. So it was, I'm sure it was him and Frank Finlay, but Finlay was just, he was just this man. He was able to convey this man that's lived with, as you say, it's a trauma. Yeah. And he, it's haunting him every day. And it's those eyes, you know, you know, mm. he had an amazing look about about him. And he, it was, I was very lucky. I've, you know, I've seen it several times since on stage and it's never been better than, than that performance for me. Um, and obviously, but the television adaptation is the ultimate uh, yeah, adaptation for me, you know. Oh, yeah, I think, um, and I think for the majority of fans. Yeah. Of, 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 of Why do you think that. Susan Hill doesn't like it particularly? I, I don't understand that. And I think, and I don't want to be wrong with this, but I'm sure I read recently she's since reevaluated her, her feelings on it. Okay. During the wilderness years, when, when I taped over the, the television drama, was told to, and I couldn't get access to it. I wrote to Susan Hill uh, to see if she had a copy, and she actually replied. Um, she was, you know, she wasn't unkind in any way. She just sort of said she doesn't have a copy, and she didn't much care for this particular version. 
um, is what she said. I don't really know why, you know, it's the closest to the book, you know, especially if you look at the Hammer version, you know. It's, yeah. I mean, the Hammer version's all bells and whistles and orchestra mm. and dry ice and things, isn't it? The CGI, the, 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 the CGI fast moving. Um, yeah. It doesn't work as well as, say, something like, you know, with Uncanny Valley in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an East Asian or it can work well because it's quite physical. That if it looks like CGI, if it looks, your brain switches off at some point going, well, it's, I might yeah. as well be what I might as well be. And, and, and I mean, well. as we've discovered in the last 25 years since it's been a thing, 20, 28 years since, since it's really been a thing, um, no special effects dates as badly as CGI. Mm. Yeah, this, this hasn't really aged badly. Regardless of there are different ways you could do it, you might say a makeup looks a bit more obvious, or you wouldn't do a dolly shot uh, like that now, or it lingers too long, or this, you know, or yeah. that's that scene isn't cut enough. Those those pads that come and go, but there's nothing there. Not least of which because this is a film. It's not it's not a TV story in the way that it's a TV play. It's not multi-camera, it's shot on location or in a sound studio and it's essentially it's essentially a film and it breathes like a film and it looks like a yeah film. it just happens to be yeah. made to be broadcast yeah. on tv exactly yeah it's and it's you can it's single camera and you can see what someone someone knows what they're doing with it as well and that's part of the job in the way that Lawrence school clark stuff but even the Lawrence school clark stuff has effects from the 70s that you're going yeah um fantastic but you know the spider things from from the ash tree don't age as well as they 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 might they might in some of those other areas there are there are quick quick special effects that you, that you would do would do would differently now but that's not something you can ever say about about women in black it's it has its production values are as timeless as the terror that, yes that um, and well. more so because they are so minimal yeah very much. Thanks very much to Robert there. It's been a tough year uh, to, 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 to say the least. And we haven't been able to release as many episodes uh, of Birdcast as, as we'd have liked, but next year is Nigel Neal's centenary. And we have some very exciting projects um, coming up to, to celebrate. And we're looking forward to sharing those with you. So we, we hope you'll bear with us, but um, until then, have a peaceful Christmas and we'll see you next year. Thank you. <laughs>